Hello, this is Sandra Hindman, founder and president of Les Enlumineurs. We specialize in manuscripts, miniatures, historic jewelry, and other small-scale works of art from the Middle Ages and the Renaissance. Welcome, and please enjoy today's podcast. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Les Enlumineurs podcast. I'm Kristen Racnello, your usual host and producer, and this is the last podcast before the winter holidays. Christmas is a major holiday throughout the world, but it's very different today than it was in the past. Christmas is an annual festival commemorating the birth of Jesus, observed primarily on December 25th. Christmas was one of the major highlights of the medieval calendar, not only for the rich, but also for the peasantry. It was one of the longest holidays of the year. Typically, the full 12 days of Christmas, during which people stopped work, decorated their homes, and put a Yule log on to burn in the hearth. The Yule log was originally a Nordic tradition, known today as the Christmas block. It is a specially selected log burnt as a winter tradition in various regions of Europe, and it might be related to Germanic pagan traditions like the Yule boar, a sacrificial animal whose bristles were used as materials for oath-swearing as the new year approached. The Yule boar is traditionally known as Sonnelgotter. The choice of a boar indicates a connection with Freyr, whose mount is the gold-bristled boar, and the continuing Swedish tradition of eating pig-shaped cakes at Christmas recalls this early custom related to Freyr. As Jacob Grimm pointed out, the serving of a boar's head at banquets, and particularly at the Queen's College in Oxford, may also be a reminiscence of the Yule boar. As we know from episode 32 of this podcast on time and the November and December calendar pages in Books of Hours, wild boars and pigs have generally been associated with winter in medieval Europe. This is because pigs were excellent co-workers for medieval farmers. They subsisted off of almost anything, so they were easy to feed and extremely smart. Pork was available and eaten across all classes, and in most areas of Europe, with the exception of very arid geographies like the Iberian Peninsula. Thus, the pig became a universal labor, associated with the dawning of winter days across a wide swath of geography and culture. The European medieval calendar was not short of holidays. Each season had its own special Christian celebration, often based on older pagan traditions. Medieval holidays were usually a chance to have a much-needed rest from the usual cyclical daily toil and were an opportunity to socialize. Rarities like meat and fish were part of even the poorest people's diets on holidays, and the tables of the rich were then adorned with unusual foods like roasted peacock. Christmas lasted from the night of Christmas Eve, which is the 24th of December, to the 12th day, Epiphany, on the 6th of January. Midwinter was a time of year which saw a lull in agricultural activity, and consequently, many peasants were permitted by their lord to have the entire two weeks off. 
The season, also often, involved gift-giving and decorating the home with narlins and wreaths of winter foliage. As one description of 12th century London by William Fitzstephen records, quote, Every man's house, as so their parish churches, was decked with holly, ivy, bay, and whatsoever the season of the year afforded to be green, end quote. Holly, with its glossy dark green leaves and bright red berries, has been considered the ideal winter decoration since antiquity. Ancient Celtic druids thought it sacred and able to ward off evil spirits, while the Romans used it as a gift to show esteem and goodwill. Mistletoe is another long-used decoration which ancient people thought was a bringer of fertility, a protector of crops, and also sometimes believed that it kept away witches. Long before the Christmas tree took center stage in the 19th century, a double ring of mistletoe was the centerpiece of many a home's decorations, under which couples would, of course, kiss. Many books of ours share this interest in perpetual greenery, their borders filled with marginal curling plants. During the Renaissance, these manuscripts' margins became more and more illusionistic spaces, with naturalistic renderings of everyday objects and repositories, almost encyclopedias, of the natural world. As we discussed last week, the pages of a book of hours contain the hours of the Virgin and center around prayers to and around the central moments of the life of the Virgin Mary. The hours refer to the eight canonical hours of the day, matins, lauds, prime, terse, sext, none, vespers, and compline. Although last week we noted that the Annunciation is really the first major event in the life of Christ and the Virgin, and thus also accompanies the first of the hours, Matins, the third hour, the prime hour or prime, is often accompanied by depictions of the Nativity or the scene depicting the birth of Jesus. The traditional Christmas narrative is the Nativity of Jesus. The New Testament of the Christian Bible states that Jesus was born in Bethlehem in accordance with messianic prophecies. When Joseph and Mary arrived in the city, the inn of Bethlehem had no room, so they offered a stable where the infant Christ was soon born, with angels proclaiming this news to shepherds who then spread the word. Although the month and date of Jesus' birth are unknown from biblical sources, the church in the early 4th century fixed the date as December 25th. This corresponds to the date of the winter solstice on the Roman calendar. It is exactly nine months after the Annunciation on March 25th, which is also the date of the spring equinox. You might be familiar with the Nativity through freestanding sculptures, which may be grouped into a nativity scene, also known as a crib or a creche, within or outside of a church, home, public place, or a natural setting. The scale of the figures may range from miniature to life-sized. These nativity scenes probably derived from acted-out tableau vivants in Rome, although St. Francis of Assisi gave the tradition a great boost. Animals feature heavily in these scenes, which always include a donkey and an ox, although many other animals are often included. 
The sculptural tradition is still popular today, with everything from giant light-up nativities to tiny porcelain scenes. You might be familiar with the term creche, that is often applied to these sculptural tableaux representing the scene of Christ's birth. We have previously held medieval nativity sculptures at Les Numniers, which are now sold, such as an astounding ox and donkey from the workshop of the brothers Giovanni Pietro de Donati and Giovanni Ambrogio de Donati. These artists were very active in the decades between the 15th and 16th centuries. Later examples of large, ornate creche scenes with dozens of figures in a wide range of materials survive from other regions of Italy, such as an 18th century Neapolitan creche at an art institute of Chicago. But this charming donkey and ox are rare and important examples of an earlier type. They came from a procession of the Magi that formed part of the larger program of a creche by the Brothers Donati workshop. We will discuss the Magi and New Year's gift-giving next week, so we'll return to this subject then. Perhaps less associated with the nativity today are manuscript illuminations, but in the medieval and renaissance periods, the nativity was a crucial part of the program in any book of ours. The earliest representations of the nativity itself are very simple, just showing the infant tightly wrapped, lying near the ground in a trough or a wicker basket. The ox and ass are always present, even when Mary or another human is not. Although they are not mentioned in the Gospel accounts, they were regarded as confirmed by Scripture from some Old Testament verses, such as Isaiah 1-3, quote, The ox knoweth his owner, and the ass his master's crib, end quote. And Habakkuk 3-2, Quote, in the midst of the two beasts will thou be known. End quote. From the end of the 5th century, Mary becomes a fixture in the scene. Joseph is a more variable element. Where a building is shown, it is usually a figurium, a simple tiled roof supported by posts. A new form of the image, which from the rare early version seems to have been formulated in 6th century Palestine, was to set the essential form of Byzantine Orthodox images down to the present day. The setting became a cave, or rather the specific cave of the Nativity in Bethlehem, which was already underneath the Church of the Nativity and well established as a place of pilgrimage with the approval of the Church. Above the opening, a mountain, represented in miniature, rises up. Mary now lies in these images, recovering on a large stuffed cushion or couch, which was known as a klein in Greek. Beside the infant, who is raised on a structure while Joseph rests his head on his hand, often outside of the image itself. The Byzantine icon of the Nativity depicts the Christ child wrapped up in swaddling clothes reminiscent of his burial wrappings. The child's often shown lying on a stone representing the tomb of Christ rather than on a manger, as this iconography presages his death. The cave of the Nativity is also a reminder of the cave in which Jesus was buried. 
the Latin church and artists adopted many of these Byzantine iconographic elements, but they preferred the stable over the cave. In an interesting moment of syncretic blending, the artist Duccio's Maesta painting tries to depict both a manger and a cave, as if the architecture was built into the rock itself. During the Gothic period, in the north, at least earlier than in Italy, increasing closeness between mother and child developed in painting, and Mary begins to hold her baby. He looks over to her. Suckling is very unusual, but it's sometimes shown. Some Byzantine icons of the Nativity show the Virgin Mary kneeling rather than reclining, indicating the tradition that the Theotokos gave birth to Christ without pain. And this was intended to contradict the perceived heresy in Nestorianism. This tradition was continued over in Latin Christendom, as can be seen in many manuscript paintings, including two of our books of ours, BOH 179 and BOH 213. BOH 179 is known as the Hours of Francois de Foix. It is a manuscript written in both Latin and French, made in Normandy, probably in Bayeux, between 1480 and 1490. It has four full-page miniatures with full borders, including a depiction of the nativity. The manuscript was made for Françoise de Foix, who was the mistress of King Francis I of France. It includes a previously unknown acrostic poem to the Virgin, most probably composed by Françoise herself, who was an amateur poetess. The engaging miniatures are by an artist who painted another book of ours localizable in Bayeux. The engaging full-page miniature of the Nativity features borders filled with green plants and even with exotic green birds, strawberries, and bluebells, recalling the traditional winter desire to decorate with anything green from ivy to mistletoe. A vibrantly blonde, youthful Virgin Mary kneels in the left-hand side of the miniature with two blonde angels mimicking her gesture of prayer. Between the angels and Mary are an ox and an ass, whom the radiant Christ child seems to hold his hand out to in a gesture of blessing. This image, as well as many images in later medieval Northern Europe, was clearly influenced by the vision of the nativity of St. Bridget of Sweden, who lived from 1303 to 1373. Bridget was a very popular mystic. Shortly before her death, she described a vision of the infant Jesus as lying on the ground and emitting light himself, and describes the Virgin as blonde-haired, just as we see the two figures appearing in this illumination. Bridget described the vision she had, writing that she saw, quote, the Virgin knelt down with great veneration in an attitude of prayer, and her back was turned to the manger. And while she was standing thus in prayer, I saw the child in her womb move, and suddenly, in a moment, she gave birth to her son, from whom radiated such an ineffable light and splendor that the sun was not comparable to it, nor did the candle that St. Joseph had put there give any light at all, the divine light totally annihilating the material light of the candle." 
I saw the glorious infant lying on the ground, naked and shining. His body was pure from any kind of soil and impurity. Then I heard also the singing of the angels, which was of miraculous sweetness and great beauty. End quote. After this, in her vision, the Virgin kneels to pray to her child to be joined by St. Joseph. In our miniature, Joseph is much older than the Virgin, with wizened gray hair and a concerned expression as he kneels on the right-hand side of the miniature. He holds a tiny, almost unnoticeable candle that is certainly eclipsed by the golden rays that emanate from the Christ child at the center of the painting. This scene is technically known as the Adoration of Christ, or the Adoration of the Christ Child, and it became one of the most common depictions of the Nativity in the 15th century, almost completely replacing the reclining virgin in the Latin church. Another example of this kneeling virgin type of Nativity or the adoration of the child, is seen in our Book of Hours 2.13. This is known as the Hours of Le Goût de la Bergère, and is actually the highlighted object of the week this week. It was produced in Paris at the time of the Bedford Master by his chief disciple, the Master of the Munich Golden Legend, so it was made around 1420. It contains 11 full-page miniatures, 24 calendar vignettes, and many illuminated roundels throughout. The text is in Latin and French. The components of the nativity scene are similar to the hours of Francois de Foix, but with many innovative exceptions. The angels hover in five marginal roundels instead of participating directly in the central illumination. The angel in the upper right corner holds a horn at rest, as though they have just triumphantly heralded the birth of Christ, again recalling Bridget's vision of the angels singing. The baby Jesus still emanates radiant golden light, but now he is nestled into the chest of the ass, supported by the donkey and ox, who enter the same space as the sacred figures. The Virgin is kneeling, her back to the stable, yet seeming to stand inside of the structure while the Christ child and animals lay outside of it. Her husband, Joseph, barely participates in the scene at all. Instead, his back is turned to the miraculous vision, where the Christ child and star of Bethlehem give off golden rays that literally glisten as the viewer moves the page. Joseph gazes into a dark, flat, matte fireplace with thin red flames against a dark ground. This may play on St. Bridget's vision of Joseph's candle, which is dwarfed by the brightness of the Christ child. Here in this illumination, Joseph sits in the dark and the viewer experiences the darkness of the matte pigmented painting of the fireplace in contrast to the golden rays of light that emanate from the naked body of the central child connecting with the radiant light of the star above. So, that's all for today's episode on the nativity and on Christmas decorations. I hope you're enjoying a break from work and are having some healthy, safe holiday celebrations. We at Les Meunières are looking forward to seeing some of you at the winter show at the Park Avenue Armory in New York toward the end of January. 
If you enjoyed this episode, be sure to rate and subscribe to the podcast and even to share this podcast with a friend who might be interested. Your ratings, reviews, and subscriptions really help more people to find the podcast. We would also love to hear your thoughts about this episode's topic. Do you know something about the nativity or the life of the Virgin or the history of Christmas decorations? Let us know. You can find out more about the manuscripts we just discussed on our website, and you can reach out with comments and questions through our social media at Listen Year. Thanks for listening and happy holidays.